Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. The new theater of the mind with the Baron of Broadcasting. The Bruce Collins Show. Welcome back to the Bruce Collins Show, the show that dares to ask the question, what is the question? What is the question? You know, I spent last weekend shadow boxing with a couple of five-star generals, and they told me an interesting fact, that if everyone held hands, nobody would be holding a gun. And of course, I tried that on a small scale, and they were right, controversial as it may seem. Now, I could spend the next four or five minutes talking about why it takes a thousand islands to make that dressing. But instead of doing that, I've invited some outstanding guests this week. Our first guest is Dee Dee Bigelow. She's an actress. She's going to be on the show Hillbilly Hand Fishing this Friday, August 30th on Animal Planet. And then later in the hour, the authors of The Ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship, Paul and Philip Collins, who claim no relationship to me. I'm a Collins, but I'm on the wrong side of town, I think. But anyways, Paul and Philip Collins, the authors of The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, will be on later in the hour to talk about their forthcoming book, no date set yet, but their forthcoming book, which is Invoking the Beyond, Paul and Philip Collins, and we will have part two next week with Paul and Philip Collins as they talk about UFOs, perhaps in a way that you've never heard before. UFOs as terrestrial-based. Part one this week, part two next week. 
Let's begin, shall we? Or as Judge Mills Lane used to say, Let's get it on! Wait, is that copyrighted? If it hadn't been for Cotton Eye Joe, I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? If it hadn't been for Cotton Eye Joe, I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? And joining us this week, once again, is Dee Dee Bigelow. She's an actress who has enjoyed parts on CSI New York, Shark, and My Name is Earl. She also starred in the movie Alien Armageddon, which had the voice of Coast to Coast AM's George Norrie in it. And she will be appearing in the August 30th episode, that's this Friday, of Hillbilly Hand Fishing on Animal Planet. Dee Dee, welcome back to The Bruce Collins Show. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me back. You know, these are my own issues, but I'm very suspicious of Animal Planet because I think it may be proof that the monkeys from Planet of the Apes are taking over one station at a time. And that may also explain the evening news. But anyways, I'll keep my kooky theories to myself. Uh, now, as I said before, you're actually going to be on this program, Hillbilly Hand Fishing, which I guess in Hillbilly Land, when they spell hand fishing, they don't use a G. But uh, tell us about the show, Hillbilly Hand Fishing. What is this show about? Well, this show's about, um, we've got a couple of guys. we got Skipper Bivens and Trent Jackson, and they've been noodling for a long time, and uh, Animal Planet uh, gave them a show so that the rest of the world could see just what these two hillbillies do. Now, how did you get on the program? You know, my fiance Brett Wagner um, actually knew somebody on the show. Cool. And we we had decided it was sort of like we we wanted to go on the show together, Brett and I. And uh, they, he said, you know, hey, I'm a horror guy, and she's a screen queen, so we would be great. And the show producers went, wait, she's a screen queen. But, well, does she, have, does she have a girlfriend that's a screen queen? Because that would be fantastic. Huh. So, somehow, all of a sudden, I'm I'm heading to Oklahoma with my friend Jilly, and uh, my fiancé, poor guy, was uh, just sort of axed out. So, um, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, that's how I got on the show. Uh, you know, circumstances are the way they are, and uh, I, I but that's how it works, so. Yeah, now... You know, I everyone that listens to this program on a regular basis knows Brett, who Brett Wagner is. I talk about him often. I have great regard oh. for him. I, I met him only once, actually, in physical appearance, which was a pro wrestling show. But we've we've become friends. I call him my friend. We, we've communicated for probably now fourteen years. And I got to say this: I don't know if he ever told you this, but uh, he. Over the years, you know, I've I've known things that were going on with them and stuff like that. And when I first saw you two guys together, I instantly emailed him. I think it was through Facebook. I probably still have a copy. And I said, that's the one. That's your soulmate. Did he ever tell you that? No, he didn't. Yeah, and he said, I think so. And that was a long time ago. That's when you guys did the... Um, 
the news interview where uh, you were going to an autograph show, both of you, and you were signing, I think it maybe was a horror show or something like that, in Oklahoma or something like that? Uh, and yeah, I saw, it was in Memphis. Yeah, and I saw that, and yeah. I, I never comment on his personal life through the years, but I saw you guys together, and I wrote to him, and I was like, wow, there's something about you guys together. This one is really good for you. Because you guys looked great together. So I'm so happy for you guys. You know, relationships have their ups and downs. But I really think, and I don't know what it was about it. It was something intangible. But for some reason, I could just tell you guys were right for each other. So uh, enough of that personal stuff. But uh, Well, no, I mean, I I would have to totally agree with you. I, there's, I, you know, I I was married in the past. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I purposely sort of, hung out and didn't didn't fall in love with someone for 10 years yeah um until brett and it you know it's like you you wait for that right person to come into your life and then when it does i think you know yeah and um i'm 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 right there with you because i i think i know who my soulmate is and i'm with him and it's and it's a great feeling yeah remind him of that email because i actually early on told him that because i have i had seen some past relationships over the years and i never said anything bad about it but i could tell it wasn't right yeah, and, and it's yeah. something intangible because I've had girlfriends before and, and people, relatives of mine said, that girl's not right for you. And they were usually right. It's even something sometimes you can't see. But when I saw that interview and the way you guys interacted with each other, I was like, wow, you know, this is the right one. So I emailed him. I'll have to remind him of that. Uh, give him a hard time. Yeah, yeah. Not that I'm a matchmaker, but I just knew it was right. Anyway, getting back on to hillbilly hand fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you said before, this is called noodling also, which I've never heard of. But this right. uh, this is different from catching fish with a pole, right? Yes. Unfortunately, there is no there's no uh, there's no fishing poles involved here. It, it just has to do with your with your bare hands and feet. Ooh. Yeah. So yeah, very different. And, very weird. And so these catfish bite, don't they? Yes, and and that's yeah they Yikes. they they bite and they have little teeth and it and it um it feels like sandpaper, like really rough sandpaper. Huh. And that's the way that you have to catch them. Um, noodling is catching you know with your with your hands or with you know t- with some part of your body. So. Hmm. Wow. You know, I used to live in Tucson, Arizona. This is kind of bizarre, but they had a restaurant called Poe Folks, again with that apostrophe, P-O apostrophe folks. And it was kind of making fun of poor Southern people. But my grandfather, I was a kid, you know, my grandfather says, order the catfish. So I ordered it and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And he goes, you know what catfish eat? And I go, no. And he goes, they eat off the bottom of the river, (laughs) the junk. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, uh-huh. that's the truth. I was thinking, thanks a lot, Grandpa. Anyways, so yeah. uh, so what were your impressions of the cast and crew? Uh, you know, the cast and crew were all really, really nice. Um, it's a weird thing because when you you're, you know you're being flown to Oklahoma, that's where the show was shot, and it's it's interesting because I had seen pictures of Skipper, and I was almost more afraid of his back hair. Yeah. Than I was of the catfish at the time. So, uh, you know, I mean, but 
Skipper and Jackson are really, really nice people. And, um, and the crew was great. You know, they were, you know, the crew, you know, sometimes when you, when you think of a reality show, there's so much on TV, unfortunately, that's just not reality anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's fake, a lot of it's set up. But, you know, this show isn't. I mean, we were in the Red River the first day for, I think, 10 hours, and there was only one time that they ever saw a catfish. <laughs> so, and the crew, the crew has to get right on in there. I mean, there's no standing on the banks of the river. The, the crew is there. They've got to hold their cameras and the sound equipment. Nothing can get wet or we're in trouble. And, you know, it's it's amazing how much the crew is right there with you. And they're enduring everything that we are. You know, they just endure it for a lot more weeks mm-hmm. <laughs> than I had to. Yeah. So before the TV show, were were these guys making a lot of money teaching people how to hand fish? You know, I'm not sure, but they do have a company now called Big Fish Adventures. And, you know, anybody can go out to Oklahoma and and go go noodling with Skipper and Jackson. So it's uh, Big Fish Adventures if people want to if people want to experience this for themselves. That's on my list right after Universal Studios. Now, uh, so so when you actually did this noodling, was, was the water murky or muddy when you tried to catch the fish? And if so, how in the world can you catch the fish? Is it kind of like reading Braille, trying to find the f- catfish? It it really is. You know what happens is is that Skipper um, Skipper and Jackson have to go ahead because what you know what the producers failed to mention before we got there is is you know you're not just dealing with catfish in the water. So when we arrived, we were told, you know, oh, now there's a couple of things we got to go over. Let's be careful of the cottonmouth snakes because they're out here, they're highly poisonous, and they swim. Hmm. So if, if we happen to come across a cottonmouth and it goes underwater, because the water is so murky, they're like, we're, we're in big trouble. So we're like, oh my gosh. Then they said there's, there's poisonous spiders. So we gotta make sure. There is, um, a fish called carp that fly out of the water at you. You have no idea that they're coming and they'll fly right out of the water and fly into your face. Hmm. It's crazy. There's, there's another fish that looks like a miniature sort of alligator called gar. They're also in the water. Now, because the water is so murky, all of these other elements that we have to deal with, Skipper and Jackson go first because where catfish hide is also where beavers like to hang out. And apparently beavers are not nice creatures when you go into their domain. Mm -hmm. So it was, the whole experience was just amazing because all of these other elements are all around us. Wow. It, it it was crazy. Um and so when you when you finally do find a catfish, I mean, they know what they're doing, so they find the catfish and then they bring us in and we have to catch it. Hmm. So yeah, it, it, it was crazy. Is this program shot in Louisiana or something somewhere like that? It's shot in Oklahoma. Okay. I was going to say if you yeah. if they were having beaver problems, they should call on Uncle Cy to shoot shoot into the uh 
uh, land mass anyway. And also, too, yeah. I was thinking, you know, if one of those flying fish flies out of the water and hits you in the face, I guess the only natural reaction would be to say, oh, carp. But anyway. Right. Bad joke. Yes, yeah, so, well, there was some choice words out of my mouth, let me tell you. <laughs> so, uh, so what do they do with the catfish once it's caught? Do the hillbillies go and eat dinner? No, we actually, it is actually catch and relief. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah, so nothing nothing bad happens to the catfish on this show whatsoever. Okay. Now here's the last serious question and then I'll have more uh less serious questions, but was there any time when one of the hillbillies actually slapped their knees and yelled yeehaw? Uh you know, it's funny. I um I, I'm sure at some point during the week that we were there they both did that. <laughs> um you know, What's funny, what's actually not on the show is that we actually went, one night we actually went to a rodeo. Wow. I think it was our last night there. And they shot footage, but it it, it didn't appear on the show. Um, so we were actually at a rodeo with these guys in Oklahoma. So, yeah, there was a lot of yeehaws going on. I suspect one of them has a banjo, but uh, we'll never know. Uh, not sure. So what tips would you have for me or maybe one of our audience if we ever decided to sit in muddy water and hunt for catfish? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how they do it. I, you know, we were brought in when they when they found one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so how how they do that and and you know, in all honesty, why anybody ever thought to do this in the first place yeah. without a pole, I don't know, but <laughs> Um, it's a huge thing. Noodling is really popular, and it's uh, it's amazing how they just, they're in the water, they're up to their necks, and they're just feeling around with their hands, feeling for for catfish. Yeah, that's wild when you think about it. But, uh, I mean, Animal Planet is a pretty cool station, you know, they've... They've done mockumentaries like the Mermaid one, and they they have some really interesting characters like that Jackson Galaxy who looks like uh, uh, Andrew Dice Clay's brother or something, or maybe he's an Elvis impersonator. I can't figure it out. Anyway, so so uh, so I saw somewhere that you were going to get uh, a comic book called Beast Mistress, where you fight crime with a white tiger. Is that true? And is that still going to happen? You know, that was an idea that I had, and I mean, you know, there's there's always the possibility I would love for it to go forward. Um, it just, it, it takes money, yeah. you know, it takes a lot of money to uh, to print um, these teaser copies and get them, like, out to people at Comic-Con, and, you know, that's something that I should revisit because it's a pretty cool thing, and yeah. I've got a great teaser comic book out of it, so... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always, it's always out there and possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, last question, yeah. then we'll remind everybody about Hillbilly Hand Fishing. And uh, obviously it's August 30th, Friday night, but I'll say it once again on Animal Planet. But I also read that you were such a Star Wars fan growing up that you memorized most or all of the lines from the movie. Is that true? Yes. Did, did you have... Yes, the, the first movie... Back when I was young, you know, let's not age myself too bad, but we had a we had these great devices called a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they don't have those now, but um, you know, I, I tape recorded the first Star Wars, and then I would play the tape uh, when I would go to sleep. Huh. Uh, and so, just because of that, 
I have the first whole movie memorized now. Wow. You know, yeah, I, I'm a geek. I know. A, a friend of mine, I, I was talking to him one day and I said, when I was a kid, my parents bought me this record and it was all two hours of the Star Wars movie on record. So you couldn't see any of oh, the yeah. scenes. And he said, I had that record too. And I remember it had a, a fold out in the middle and it was that giant spaceship at the beginning that Darth Vader was in that picked up uh, Princess Leia's uh, spaceship or whatever but uh, uh-huh. i couldn't believe that he had the exact same record when he was a kid amazing and i i, I learned quite That's a few of the right. lines too but I, of course i've forgotten them now but uh, i could pretend i could hum a few bars but anyway yeah uh, but no it's great but again great. The, the 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 program is this friday august 30th hillbilly hand fishing dd bigelow's in the show i'll be checking it out i know you'll want to check it out too out there and uh, where can people go to find out more about you or future events? Um, you know, you can just find me on Facebook. It's uh, just Dee Dee Bigelow um, on Facebook. Feel free to just come, you know, they can come and follow me on there or send me a friend request. And, um, yeah, the show, the show airs this Friday, Animal Planet, at 6 p.m., and then it will repeat at 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So I think it's kind of a hillbilly hand fishing Marathon all all night long on uh, on Friday night. So excellent Friday night hillbilly hand fishing with Dee Dee Bigelow. And if you can't find her on Facebook and your friends of mine, just scroll down and look at all of my friends. She'll be on that list, so you can find her there too. Uh, Dee Dee, thank yep. you so much for joining us once again. Oh no, thank you so much for having me. It was a you know it's a once in a lifetime experience, and it, you know if, if anybody wants a an incredible thrill. And to go out there in the waters that you can't see anything and, and catch a catfish with your bare hands, look up Big Fish Adventures, head out there with Skipper and Jackson, they'll take you out, and you will have the time of your life, I guarantee it. Yeah, but I must give this caveat. Kids, don't try this at home. Your parents won't like a muddy bathtub. Exactly, exactly. Thanks, Dee I agree. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful song. It's a very popular number. From a galaxy far, far away. Next week, 
Joining us once again is radio's lethal weapon, Chad Miles. Up next, the Collins Brothers with part one of their talk, Invoking the Beyond. And join us next week for Chad Miles and part two. And joining us once again this week, it's my pleasure and honor to have back uh, Paul and Philip Collins. They are the authors of The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. You can also find much of their work in the form of columns at conspiracyarchive.com. Again, their first book is The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. I highly recommend that book. And uh, you can go into past archives of The Bruce Collins Show, and there are many episodes right there with Paul and Philip Collins, as well as uh, they had a program here on Fringe Radio Network, and uh, you can find those episodes also at FringeRadioNetwork.com. Paul and Philip, welcome back to the Bruce Collins Show. Thank you so much, Bruce. You know, you guys I know have been working on something lately. What Can you give us a summary and tell us what you've been working on lately? Yeah, sure. Um, well, here as of late, we've been working on uh, our follow-up to the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship. Um, it's entitled Invoking the Beyond. And we started that manuscript back in 2006, but I wasn't very happy with the way that the original draft was coming together. It wasn't really stating the thesis coherently. And moreover, we had several professional and personal obligations that stultified the writing of the manuscript. So uh, it was around, I think, oh, 2010, we picked up the outline for the manuscript and re-examined it and have uh, since then been refining the thesis. And now it's coming together far more coherently. And we're pleased with the uh, progress that we're making on it. It's just been very slow going because just because of personal and professional obligations. I just recently was married and we've relocated and so all those occurrences have slowed progress but we're back to work on it and hopefully uh, bef- sometime by next year we'll have the book ready to go we're not making any promises concerning a release date though because well frankly speaking we don't know when it's going to occur we want to be as satisfied with the final product as the potential readers will be so when you talk about invoking the beyond what is the beyond The beyond uh, arises from what we call the Kantian Rift, which is really an appellation that we assign to the epistemological disjunction between phenomena, that is to say appearances, and noumenon, or that is to say the thing in itself. This bifurcation was imposed upon epistemology by the Enlightenment theoretician Immanuel Kant, who lived from uh, 1724 to 1804, 
But clarity of definitions is very important in philosophical discussions such as these. So for the edification of the audience, I'll try to define phenomenon and noumenon as best as I possibly can. Basically, phenomena refers to objects that are discerned through sense perception. Phenomena are observable occurrences. In epistemological terms, phenomenon is empirically and quantifiably demonstrable, and as such, phenomenon falls within the vocational purview of the physical sciences. Now, that stands in contradistinction to noumenon, which refers to objects that must be discerned independent of sense perception. In the original German, it's the Ding on Sieg, or the thing in itself. And Kant's invocation of the term in its relation to phenomena has been the topic of much debate. In the pre-Kantian world of ancient philosophy, noumenon really held uh, spiritual and even theistic implications. For instance, uh, Platonic ideas and forms qualify as noumena. For example, the Platonic realist Pluclos regarded Plato's forms as thoughts within the mind of God. But in keeping with the characteristic uh, scientism of his Enlightenment heritage, Kant stripped noumenon of its spiritual and transcendent value. And Kant's redefinition of noumenon gives rise to all sorts of terminological confusion. Uh, Schopenhauer criticized Kant for changing the meaning of noumenon, which originally meant that which is thought. Uh, in fact, noumenon is etymologically derived from the Greek term that is related to nous, or mind. But in the context of Kantian metaphysics, noumenon no longer has any relationship with the mind, and this terminological confusion, uh, like I said, has been the source of much debate in the philosophical world, but that terminological confusion aside, Kant's bifurcation of noumenon and phenomena would play an enormous role in the shaping of the uh, ideational marketplace of modernity. Essentially, Kant argued that knowledge independent of the senses was impossible, and thus the objective reality underpinning sensible objects was unknowable. All that could be known was phenomenon. The noumenon remained shrouded in a sort of epistemological fog. And so knowledge is now restricted to phenomena in the discipline of metaphysics has been essentially banished from philosophy because it was vocationally circumscribed by Kant's arbitrarily imposed disjunction upon noumenon and phenomenon, philosophy must now make unreasonable concessions to science. And because science must work within the constraints of uh, quantitative and empirical investigative methods, findings that might be yielded by non-empirical means are deemed recalcitrant and summarily jettisoned. So... Kantian metaphysics gives rise to theism and scientism, which have not just contributed to the decline in the social significance of religious ideas and institutions and the rise of secularism, but has also led to the rise of scientific totalitarianism. Fideism basically rejects the complementary roles of uh, reason and faith, thereby paving the way for anti-intellectualism, which is a mood that 
pervades the fundamentalism, ironically enough. It also gives rise to pragmatism and agnosticism. And while it's true that faith in supernatural truths is ultimately motivated by revelation, the allocation of confidence and trust in the sublime experience of revelation must be guided by reason. And in the absence of reason, faith becomes blind, which is a hallmark of superstition. And clearly, legitimate faith is not so credulous, a fact attested to by the scriptures themselves. For instance, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle John exhorts, quote, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, unquote. Uh, evidently, the believer is not to be so credulous and accept whatever claimants to divine or prophetic status are out there. They have to test the spirits. So not only does fideism undermine intellectual knowledge, but it logically undermines faith as well. And with the uh, credibility of faith eroded, the quantitative and empirical investigational methods of science attain epistemological primacy. And this is scientism. Scientism is basically epistemological imperialism. It promotes the extrapolation of science into contexts that fall outside the ambit of scientific inquiry. It's not within the vocational purview of science. When extended beyond its legitimate fields of application, science becomes really a rigid template that even most complex of entities, such as man, must conform to. The scientific outlook really acknowledges no moral master. It tells us what is, but it doesn't tell us what ought to be. It can't speak to the normative. All it can speak to is what is, the factual. And it gives no assent to moral or aesthetic judgments. And in the words of B.F. Skinner, it basically dehumunculizes man. But essentially, this dehumunculization of man basically demolishes any notions of freedom and dignity that he once enjoyed. And when extrapolated into the context of governance, science really becomes an oppressor in the scientifically regimented state the citizen becomes nothing more than really an amalgam of behavioral repertoires whose every thought, feeling, and idea is the product of external stimuli. So the populace's motivations from this scientific vantage point can be calculated and systematized, thereby allowing for those few conditioners who are supposedly unaccountable to any moral master who sit aloft the social organism with cold objectivity. They alone have the right to develop economic and technological stimuli that can produce the desired patterns of mass behavior. And this was the topic of our previous book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, basically the rise of that societal model, which is a scientific dictatorship, uh, a term that has been interchangeably used with the term technocracy. But at any rate, within the disjunctive framework of Kantian metaphysics, reason cannot pierce the noumenal realm. And so man has no real hope of knowing any reality beyond the shadows on the wall of the cave or the appearances. And several of his most treasured metaphysical propositions are laid to waste. These include concepts like the noumenal world, the human soul, and, of course, God. In fact, Kant argued that these ideals of reason could not be experienced. They laid outside the experiential limits of man. And not surprisingly, Kant calls traditional metaphysics a transcendent illusion. And God, the soul, in the objective reality underpinning this one, 
are obliterated, and where still man has no hope of ever gaining epistemological certainty concerning these things because he is hardwired to systematize the raw, unstructured experiential data of the phenomenal world in a way that is potentially disproportionate with reality. And so man is really sentenced to epistemological exile within the vagueness of subjectivism and ultimately epistemic relativism. And the West's adoption of Kant's epistemological relativism has resulted in an overall detachment from the nature of the world and the cosmos or the ordered arrangement that governs it. Reality still asserts itself, but the Western man refuses to accept its perennial lessons. But in the place of the transcendent illusions of the soul of heaven and of God now sits the unknowable, nebulous, ambiguous beyond. And from the Kantian vantage point, man is really just this lost cartographer whose epistemological maps cannot accurately reflect the geography of reality. Uh, No explanatory model, no conceptual framework, or even revelation from a transcendent God will ever help man navigate the unknowable, dark, inhuman waters around him. And meanwhile, he's mocked by an incomprehensible beyond, which occasionally asserts itself in his affairs and plunges his world into chaos. And this holds especially true for governance, which in its legitimate forms allows humanity to really peaceably coexist with the optimal amount of freedom. And well, when faced with the beyond, legitimate national governments are dwarfed epistemologically and ontologically. The world of politics plunges into an incoherent malaise that the governmental decision-making machinery of parliaments or Congress or other representative bodies is really ill-equipped to remedy. And in turn, the outstripping of the world by the beyond numinal qualities necessitates the imposition of some sort of managerial model upon politics and international relations. The beyond has to be managed. Otherwise, national governments will succumb to the forces of global anarchy. At least that's the rationale that's espoused by those who invoke the beyond in the realm of politics. Invariably, the managerial model proposed is, to some extent, anti-democratic and totalitarian. Needless to say, the beyond has proven to be an advantageous construct for the forces of oligarchy whose meddlesome fingers have been in uh, human affairs all throughout the uh, 20th century. So we see how the beyond becomes kind of a narrative construct to be invoked for the political and social expediency of would-be technocrats, of policy professionals, who would seek to circumvent democratic governance in favor of a scientifically regimented society or a scientific dictatorship. So the beyond is really indispensable to oligarchs because its recondite nature predisposes it to the assignment of politically and socially expedient masks. The beyond can be rendered intelligible by any number of faces formulated by the dominant intelligentsia. And these masks have included, and we cover these in our forthcoming book, nuclear annihilation, environmental calamity, and extraterrestrial invasion. Although that might sound fantastic, that has been one of the many masks assigned the beyond 
that provides a rationale for the imposition of an anti-democratic, technocratic societal model upon the world. The external threat, whatever it happens to be, gives rise to security discourses which are invariably governed by fear, and fear tends to engender compliance among the fearful who eventually make very, very weighty concessions to the oligarchs who promise to protect them. These concessions they would have never thought to have made under any other circumstances, but because their world has been plunged into chaos, because legitimate national governments have been ontologically and epistemologically overwhelmed by the beyond, now they're willing to exchange liberty for security. And the oligarchs act as the ultimate mediators between humanity and the beyond. They are the interpreters of what the beyond is. They claim to possess the hermeneutical keys for rendering the beyond intelligible, but the beyond really just qualifies as nothing more than a deux ex machina, a god from the machine, which finds embodiment with the solutions that are proposed by the establishment's technocratic policy professionals who really lay claim to a kind of socio-political gnosis. But that's kind of the beyond in a nutshell. The beyond is this narratives construct that's invoked by would-be oligarchs and legitimized by Kantian metaphysics to undercut the legitimacy of representative governance and enshrine technocratic policy professionals. And I'm glad you mentioned the Christian faith and how reason fits in with the Christian faith. Simply stated, the beyond is used by the oligarchs to, I guess, it's probably more complicated than this, but to manipulate correct? Yeah, no, that's not uh, overly simplistic at all. As a matter of fact, that is really, at the end of the day, what the Beyond's purpose is. is it's, a, it's a narrative construct imposed upon security discourses that allows for the formulation of a compelling rationale for otherwise unthinkable measures being imposed upon governance, uh, technocratic and anti-democratic uh, measures. So you would think the Christian faith would be at odds with this. Unfortunately, sometimes it isn't in large groups. But uh, if so, in what ways would the Christian faith be at odds? Uh, and I know you've stated this, but sort of restating it, in what ways would the Christian faith be at odds with, say, the, the Kantian riff? Look at how it casts faith in a derisive light. Faith is caricatured within Kantian metaphysics as blind, but this is not legitimate faith. Yeah. The New Testament word for faith was etymologically derived from the Greek word pistis, and when invoked as a noun, pistis, the pistis acts as a technical rhetorical term for forensic proof. And Aristotle and Quintilian, who were philosophers who are not part of the Christian tradition, instead they were pagan philosophers, invoked the very same term in their works to connote proof, and proof is evidentiary. Forensic proof is evidentiary-based. It's not blind. And many of the apostles make evidentiary appeals for the Christian faith. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36, Peter makes three evidentiary citations in defense of of the faith. He cites Jesus' miracles, wonders, and signs. He cites the empty tomb. And lastly, he cites the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And thus, Peter's apologia is premised upon evidence. It's evidentiary. Or as the 
term pistis denotes it's premised upon proofs, and proofs appeal to reason. And this understanding of faith underscores the complementary relationship with reason that faith enjoys and refutes Kant's fideism. Unfortunately, fideism seems to be like a one of the dominant moods that has come to really dominate Christian thinking, particularly in fundamentalist circles. But also, thanks to the Kantian riff, the predominant contention of modern philosophy is that the phenomenal realm is all that there is, or really all that is knowable, and in turn the realm of the knowable has come under the ecclesiastical authority of the scientific materialist, who advanced their quantitative and empirical methodologies as the only hermeneutical keys suitable for rendering phenomenon intelligible. And the uh, decrees of this new ecclesiastical authority concerning the knowable are accepted as absolute because the epistemological bifurcation that's imposed by the Kantian Rift has relegated the noumenal realm to either irrelevant unintelligibility or virtual non-existence. And when the Kantian Rift holds sway, one can easily contend that noumenon stands really in no verifiable causal relationship to phenomenon, and thus appeals to the noumenal are no longer considered admissible in debates where the tenability of a spiritual reality and the existence of God himself are at stake. For instance, you look at arguments like St. Thomas Aquinas' Five Proofs for the Existence of God. Those sort of arguments within the modern mood of philosophy, which has been to a large extent affected by Kantian metaphysics and the Kantian rift, those sort of arguments are regarded as antiquated and anachronistic. The only agencies that are granted causative power are the forces of the material world. Thus, the Kantian rift upholds the primacy of scientific materialism, which portrays the ontological confines of the physical universe as the totality of reality itself. Essentially, the material world is really hypostatized within the context of this discussion. The term hypostasis, uh, as I'm invoking it, denotes a fundamental self-sufficient reality upon which all else is contingent. And this hypostatic depiction of the universe provides the basis for the virtual apotheosis of material agencies and the enshrinement of emanatism. And in the absence of a transcendent God in another world, the hypostatic view of material agencies gains the semblance of sense, and human reason can be elevated to the status of being a divine revelatory agency. And the denial of contact with a world beyond this one provides the basis for the self-sufficient portrayal of nature, which is supposedly explained through this incoherent narrative involving an infinite regress of contingent agencies imbued with the causative powers of the divine. But this really leads into pantheism, which of course is at odds with the traditional theistic notion of God, particularly the theistic conception of God advanced by Christianity. You see these pantheistic proclivities exhibited amongst many prominent atheist and enlightenment theists. For instance, David Hume admits as much in dialogues concerning natural religion, where he writes, quote, It were better never to look beyond the present material world. By supposing it to contain the principle of its order within itself, we really assert it to be God. And the sooner we arrive at that divinity, the better, unquote. So you see how the naturalist strives not toward an objective understanding of the natural order, but 
the reassertion of pagan spirituality and the demonization of the world. Another case in point would be the deceased astrophysicist and cosmologist Carl Sagan, who prophesied the arrival of a new pantheistic religion with glowing approval in his book, Hell Blue Dot, where he wrote, quote, a religion, old or new, that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge, unquote. So really, these proclivities towards pantheism owe themselves to the metaphysical claim of self-creation, which is encapsulated within the concept of a spontaneous generation, which you've heard reiterated ad nauseum by many modern thinkers, such as Stephen Hawking. In fact, the grand design, his entire book, is a defense of the thesis of spontaneous generation. But in fact, spontaneous generation provides the premises for directed panspermia, which ends in some formulation of exotheology or the promotion of extraterrestrial gods, the notion of aliens descending to Earth be interpreted as gods by the primitive peoples of the ancient world and advancing human evolution. But once again, with this notion of alien gods, with exotheology, we have an infinite regress of contingent agencies imbued with the causative powers reserved for deities. And so it's really pantheism. And from pantheism, we have a philosophical bridge into the deification of man himself. You see this with secularism, because secularism has become the dominant cultural mood, and secularism, as it was defined by Eric Vogelin, is really a radical emanatism. It really is the experiential devonization of man. For instance, Feuerbach and Marx interpreted the transcendent God as a hypostatic projection of the very best features of man. And the great epoch of history would come when man drew that hypostatic projection back into himself and would be transfigured into Superman. Same with Nietzsche, Nietzsche's advancement of the Ubermensch. So really, it's just really a philosophical segue for the deification of man, for man's apotheosis. And this was really the ends towards which the Enlightenment, which was really arguably a Gnostic revival, towards which it has striven, and towards which uh, modern thinkers such as Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, all these self-avowed atheists, have striven, and the would-be oligarchs that invoke the beyond have striven. It's the redevonization of man, the apotheosis of man. Hmm, fascinating. Now, can you touch on the fact that there's mounting evidence that the UFO phenomenon is terrestrial-based? In our book, we start looking at this. The, the earliest pieces of evidence that we could find that we begin to examine in the manuscript for our new book pointing towards a terrestrial-based deception behind the UFO phenomena appears in the pages of fiction. It appears in a 1948 novel written and authored by Bernard Newman entitled The Flying Saucer. And this book presents uh, the readers with a conspiratorial cabal of scientists who really bear eerie resemblance to the technocracy that is being suggested by today's oligarchs, but they bear eerie resemblance to the kind of technocratic structures 
that are being promoted by the power elite. And this cabal of scientists is collected from across the world, and they possess the all-too-familiar goal of ending war and establishing a utopia. And in order to realize their globalist dream of a united planet, the scientists manufacture a threat from space. The scientists stage several incidents, and these incidents are manifested as crashes, spaceship crashes in different locations, different strategic locations across the globe. The second of those crashes, interestingly enough, occurs in New Mexico. And the crash in New Mexico is of a vessel that has mysterious hieroglyphics on it. And, of course, this bears eerie resemblance to the Roswell incident and to the Roswell spacecraft, which some witnesses allege had hieroglyphic writings and features on them. But anyways, the hieroglyphic message on the craft that falls in New Mexico is deciphered. And what the message ends up being is a threat by a civilization from Mars. And... Then uh, later on, a missile attack takes place in an uninhabited forest, kind of almost a cosmic Tonkin Bay kind of situation. Your listeners might be familiar with the Bay of Tonkin incident, which has now been found to be largely a false flag operation that was meant to draw America into Vietnam and led to an escalation of America's military involvement in that region of the world. Another spaceship crashes that actually contains the remains of a deceased alien, which the scientists have cleverly put together with animal parts. And then the book leads to this big crescendo where live aliens actually land in different places all over the globe. And as a result of this invasion, the the United States and the Soviet Union decide to put aside all of their differences. And they decide to also end nuclear proliferation and bring all the nuclear weapons under one global authority. Newman may have become privy to actual plans within elitist and intelligence circles to create an alien menace during his work with the British Ministry of Information, which was the government department that was responsible for propaganda during the Second World War in Britain. This was located in the Senate House at the University of London during World War II, and this ministry supposedly acted as the model for the Ministry of Truth, uh, Oceana's propaganda ministry, in George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984. It's interesting that Orwell's wife, Eileen, worked for the Ministry of Information in the Censorship Department from uh, the years 1939 to 1942, and the Ministry 
of information prevented Orwell's book from being published during the war due to its strong anti-communist and anti-Stalinist message. And at the time, the Ministry of Information was spreading pro-Soviet propaganda so that the British population would view Stalin as an ally in the war against the Axis. Newman joined the Ministry of Information as a staff lecturer following Britain's crushing defeat at Dunkirk in 1940. And during his time with the ministry, he wrote several books that were meant to promote the British cause and the British war drive. And those books included The Story of Poland, Siegfried Spy, uh, Savoy Corsica Tunis, Death of the Fifth Column, One Man's View, Secret Weapon, The New Europe, and several others. Newman also traveled to the United States to spread pro-British propaganda and worked to end America's quote-unquote isolationist stance. Really what he was trying to do was get America to adopt an interventionist foreign policy that would be advantageous to the British at that time. The Ministry of Information paid for his travel expenses, and he did a very extensive tour of America. So Newman's stateside propaganda mission suggests that the writer was at least marginally familiar with the techniques of semiotic manipulation pioneered by communication theoreticians, such theoreticians that would have populated the Ministry of Information. And steeped in this milieu as he was, Newman may have become aware of plans to hoax an alien visitation for propagandistic purposes. If his work of science fiction was actually a thinly veiled Ramon Aklef, then the ultimate ends of the actual propaganda campaigns to which he might have been privy would probably have been the facilitation of global political unification. And that's what we believe that the ultimate ends of the terrestrial-based UFO deception is. We believe that that is the ultimate end, is global unification in a global management system that has been euphemistically referred to in elitist circles as the New World Order. And, of course, the New World Order is when one takes a, a closer look at the writings of different different retainers for the elites and different theoreticians that are, work at the employ of the elite, the New World Order is, of course, anything but euphemistic. It is authoritarian, actually verging on totalitarian, and based on many different anti-democratic concepts, concepts that those familiar with Jeffersonian democracy would find abhorrent. Hmm. To reiterate what I was uh, saying previously, Bruce, the instantiation of such a societal model on a global scale is made possible by the nation-state's supposed relegation to obsolescence by being virtually dwarfed by the beyond, dwarfed epistemologically and uh, ontologically. If legitimate national governments are deemed outmoded and antiquated in the face of the beyond, in this case the beyond being supposed extraterrestrial vis visitation, then you have a very compelling rationale for the amalgamation of nation states into a single homogenized technocratic world state. Hmm. But, but Bernard Newman's work of fiction seems to be the first forensic trace 
that we can find of a developing plan among the deviant elites of the world and criminalized portions of the intelligence community to hoax some kind of alien presence taking up residence on Earth and this presence at different periods in time depending on the plans of these hidden social engineers this presence is presented sometimes as hostile and sometimes as benevolent depending on what is advantageous to the hidden social engineers of the New World Order at that given period in time. It also really affirms the pantheistic and ultimately apotheosized view of man that you, you see being advanced in the world of uh, philosophical thought today. Again, we have a series of contingent ent entities which have been imbued with the causative powers of divinity, which, of course, is a contradiction in terms because contingent entities cannot explain their existence in and of themselves. Therefore, they could not qualify as divine, but nevertheless, they've been imbued with the powers of the divine. In this instance, the being aliens, being depicted as ancient gods, you see them being posited as the ultimate cause of the universe, and because they are unto us just higher tiers on the evolutionary scale, it stands to reason that man can, through evolutionary development, eventually attain that same divinity. And that's essentially what exotheology is, is it's the belief in a sort of evolutionary pantheism and the apotheosis of man. It's essentially the newest updated version of Gnosticism, albeit an emanatist form of Gnosticism. And this is the new spirituality that many of the would-be oligarchs is hoping to promote as a cohesive element for the emergent technocratic world state. Hmm. You guys are helping me see this in a totally different way. That's that's fascinating. And I've never heard of author Bernard Newman, but that that is some seriously compelling evidence.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.